This message first aired on the radio on October 20, 2003. We've been studying uh, an overview of the scriptures. We're looking at the way that the Bible's laid out, and we're going through the Bible in an overview fashion. And our hope is that we help you to enjoy the Word of God. One of the things I find that's a gift of God is the enjoyment of the Scriptures. And for about 23 years now, a little more than that, I've enjoyed the Scriptures. Now, I've been a Christian for uh, 28 and a half years, got saved right here in Omaha, and heard the Word of God from a few different people in a very private way. And I spent a couple of years wandering about, wondering what it meant to be born again after I had believed. And if that sounds strange to you, it was a bit strange. It was very murky. I don't think that's necessary, but I think one of the reasons for that is it's pretty hard to find someone who will really take you aside and lay out for you how it is that salvation works. But God, who causes all things to work together for the good to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose sanctified also that couple of years of wandering around to my benefit and therefore has made an impression upon me to be one who does explain that salvation by faith in Christ actually works, that the substitutionary death of Christ in our behalf is not the waving of a magic wand by God, nor is it God showing favoritism to certain special ones, but it is God's righteousness revealed And it's very reasonable, and it's very orderly. And so we try to include also in our broadcast, as we go through the Scriptures, the great drama of redemption, and we try to capsulize it from time to time. When we are going through the overview of the Scriptures, which we break into various dispensations, we find that there are seven or eight of them. Now, different people can disagree about what constitutes a dispensation or a house order of God. But it seems to me unreasonable to say that there's no such thing when the Apostle Paul said that a dispensation was given to him. And what is this word dispensation? Four-syllable word costs you a quarter, maybe every time you say it. This is the English translation. Let me just say the King James English translation of the Greek word economia, we also have the English word economy that is a not really a translation but a transliteration right off that word. But in modern parlance, the word economy seems to mean our system of exchange of goods. We've really narrowed it down, and it doesn't mean political economy, and it doesn't mean the order of the house as it does, for example, in more British English. So we stick with the word dispensation, it becomes a Bible word, and it means the way that God has arranged his program at different times throughout the scripture. The dispensations of God are not defined by time, though they occur in time. They're defined by the arrangements that God makes. God also divides time in unusual and interesting ways. God has slices of time. We believe that when the Scripture teaches that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day, and that we have the seven days or the septenary arrangement of God in the creation, that we have also the septenary arrangement of God in human history. So we say that human history breaks out into a period of about 7,000 years. Now I say human history, but of course the Lord Jesus Christ, a human being, 
He became a man at a given point. He lives forever. Some of us who've received Christ as our Savior, we also have what's known as eternal life or age-abiding life. And so we know there are ages upon the ages upon the ages out into the future about which the Scripture says much less than it does about the 7,000 years. Some have asked, well, we have the entire Scriptures that God has given. God is silent. When he speaks again, he'll shake the heavens and the earth. Well, when the Lord Jesus Christ came to us, he gave us more Scripture. And maybe when he comes back again, there'll be another book, who knows, that goes into the ages of the ages. It's possible. So what we have is God's entire word, at least for now. And we see it so orderly and broken out into epics or arrangements of God, dispensations of God. We also see it broken out in terms of time. And it's interesting that if you look at human history, according to the scriptures, we're near or at the end of the sixth 1,000-year period. And so we do believe, uh, in this broadcast, we do believe that the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is near. Now, we don't just believe it. We don't merely believe it because it's been 6,000 years approximately since Adam. But we also believe it because we see the prophetic things occurring that the Scriptures teach us to look for. And what is one of the most repeated prophetic things to look for? It tells us that that day shall not come except there be a falling away first, or a departure, or apostasia, or apostasy. And here at BibleStudy.net, we've been watching the apostasy for some time. And in fact, the apostasy is the overwhelming, that is the falling away from the faith, is the overwhelming thing for which we have evidence. And you say, well, who's falling away from the faith? Everybody's falling away from the faith. The nations are falling away from the faith. The families are falling away from the faith. Churches, certainly, falling away from the faith. We even see the nation of Israel falling away from the faith, falling further away from the faith. So it's a wonderful opportunity that we have, and here we are in the fifth dispensation. It's a wonderful opportunity we have to learn as we look at Israel and what happened to it when it fell away. And when Israel fell away from the faith, finally, when they finally turned from God, God turned them over. Now we're talking historically because they continually fall away from God. But as they fall away from God during this dispensation of the law, God turned them over to their oppressors. And God brought oppressors from outside upon Israel. And uh, if it's this way for God's nation, one nation under God, it's this way for every nation. And so we learn something about what happens to nations when they fall away from the faith. And last week we looked at how it was that the Assyrians came in and took Israel and oppressed them. You remember the the Assyrians came in, Israel linked up with Syria in order to overtake Judah, and God would not tolerate that, so the king of Judah hired the Assyrians to come with him, and God took Israel in its own oppression, the ten tribes, and the king of Assyria became an oppressor not only over Israel, but a hegemon, also over Judah, its friend. And therefore, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, became really an underlord of the king of Assyria, but Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not, 
and he broke loose, and he escaped the Assyrian net that had grabbed the ten tribes, and we begin to hope that Hezekiah is the one to restore Israel, the one who is like David who will bring glory back to Israel. But, of course, my friends, there's only one who's the son of David who will restore the glory of Israel, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ, and Hezekiah is not him. And we reflected briefly toward the end of our broadcast last week. We reflected very briefly that in the book of Isaiah, you see that as the failure of Hezekiah becomes abundantly clear in the 39th chapter, the tone of the book of Isaiah in chapter 40 turns to the looking forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that the book of Isaiah is not prophetic throughout. I hope I didn't give some indication. Well, I may have misled unintentionally by brevity that the book of Isaiah is not prophetic throughout, but there is a distinct turn in the book of Isaiah. It's unmistakable in its voice and in its point of view at the demise of Hezekiah. Well, we're going to look today at some detail in Hezekiah's demise and the crushing of the hopes of Judah, because there's a lot of lessons here, and it tells us a little bit more about ourselves. And we really do learn much more about ourselves from looking at failure in the Scripture than we do looking at success. And we also find that failure of humanity is the overwhelming story of the Scripture, and heroic deeds and other aspects of humanity that are, let's say, respectable, are very rare occurrences. The story of the book, the story of the Bible is that God is faithful and that men are sinners, unfaithful worms and wretches. And we're going to see some of the wretchedness of Hezekiah. Now we're in the 18th chapter of Second Kings. Even though God delivers him and allows his rebellion against the king of Assyria to succeed, whereas the quiet rebellion and conspiracy of the king of Israel led to their captivity. Even though it succeeded, the king of Assyria sent his spokesmen and his officers down to Hezekiah. You may remember this, and their speeches are replete, not only in Second Kings and Chronicles, but also in the book of Isaiah. And the king of Assyria's approach to take Judah was a very interesting approach. He approached on the basis of, I'll say this, propaganda. He wanted to propagandize the people. He wanted to disturb the people. He wanted to bring them into fear, and he wanted to bring them into disunity. And uh, I just want to comment on that, that, well, a nation divided against itself cannot stand. That's the appropriation of Scripture where the Lord Jesus said, a house divided itself cannot stand. He was talking about Satan's house. As Satan's not divided against himself. He's, all, he's always on his own team. He's never on God's team. And uh, Abraham Lincoln took that and said a nation divided against itself cannot stand during the time of the Civil War, which is true. The disunity that was created, the animosity that ended up in Civil War during the Civil War was going to destroy this nation. It had to be overcome. Uh, I don't know how it was overcome, but then again, I don't know exactly who it was that sowed the discord between the North and the South to create the Civil War. It certainly wasn't simply about an issue of slavery. That wasn't it. Nor was it about uh, mere economic issues. One thing I am certain is there were outside influences systematically at work to create, for example, our Civil War. And they were effective forces. And that's a nation. Nation divide against itself. That's how you weaken a nation. This is the tactic 
that the Assyrian king used against Judah, and he used the weapon of propaganda to do so. He said, you can't trust in this guy Hezekiah, you can't trust your king, and let not Hezekiah deceive you, he cannot deliver you. That is what the spokesman for the king of Assyria, it tells us in Second Kings 18, the Rabshakeh, is not this guy's name. We don't know his name. This is their chief of propaganda. This is a propaganda man. They're a propaganda officer. Common today, well, it was fairly uncommon in that day, but very creative by the Assyrians. So they sent down their propaganda officer who spoke Hebrew so that the people could hear him, and he went over the normal channels of communication that were established in Judah. So no longer were the communication channels controlled by Hezekiah, but because the Rabshakeh of Assyria learned Hebrew, probably from the tribes of Israel that they had already taken in, uh, he came down and he said, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria, thus saith the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. This is a form of warfare. These are called psyops today, psychological warfare, psychological operations. They are a substantial portion of warfare, and it's to divide and to disunify a people. Much could be said here, but it won't be, because we're going to move along after this brief message. So we're looking at the psychological operations of the king of Assyria against the tribe of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, we might say really what's left of the kingdom of Israel. Not only did the Rabshakeh attempt to move the children of Judah away from their leader, King Hezekiah, but he also says, neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat ye every man of his own vine, and every man of his own fig tree, and drink you every one of the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of corn and wine. So he promises them everything but freedom a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil, olive, and of honey, that you may live and not die, and hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuades you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. That's what he says. So, now, they need men who will say, Give me liberty or give me death. They need men who say, I'm going to believe. As for me and my house, we'll serve Jehovah. They need men who are going to say, We're going to trust that God can deliver us from the hand of our enemies. And friends, this is a difficult thing to do when the spirit of fear is upon you. The scripture teaches us in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. That is why we're interested in the power of the blood of Christ, in the power of the word of God, and we're not interested in the means of men. We look to God and God alone in times of trouble. But even though the scripture says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, that is to teach us that because we experience the spirit of fear, and anyone who tells you otherwise is a liar. Don't pay any attention to him. The fact is, our enemy, Satan, 
and those who listen to him and operate under his influence and the influence of his uh, minions, or we could just say Satan and his minions, whether human or spirit, bring to pass in our thoughts, in our heart, fear. And fear has torment, and fear has anxiety. And when fear comes upon us, it is a judgment call. Second Timothy 1, verse 7, the Scripture teaches us, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so to stand fast against your fears, that is the power of God. And a courageous man is not a man who has no fear. That's a foolish man. That's a liar, actually. All men have fear. It is a man who stands against his fears. So the king now gives good advice to the people as they hear this psychological warfare, as they hear this propaganda campaign. And he said, it tells us in the scripture, but the people held their peace and answered him not a word for the king's commandment was saying, do not answer him. Let him go. Let him talk. Let him talk. I'm reminded of, for example, in a little microcosm of warfare, in sports, sometimes you just let them talk. I have had the opportunity to talk in some detail to one of the players in the Nebraska-Florida National Championship game of 1996. I had the privilege of attending that game. Uh, my son giving me tickets. Wasn't that nice of him? And afterwards, I said, you know, you guys, how was the talk before the game? Well, it turned out we were lined up in the hallway before the game due to some unusual delay. The two teams were lined up in the hallway before the game facing each other, uh, you know, not very many feet apart. And uh, that's not supposed to happen. One team's supposed to clear that hallway before another team comes into it. And he explained to me that the Florida team was just doing a huge amount of talking huge amount of smack, a lot of talking, sounding off about what they were going to do to their opponents. And as I understand it, the Nebraska team was under orders to be quiet, and they kept quiet. Now, I have a hard time believing that they really kept quiet, but his fella was in a position to know, and he said, we kept quiet, and they did their talking on the field. So here, this is that kind of quiet confidence that Hezekiah is trying to signal to his enemies. But of course, he's terrorized himself. Uh, he tore his clothes, he covers himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he sought the Lord. And this is what you should do when you're in fear. Don't act. Don't act out of your fears. Don't let your heart run like water. Turn to the Lord. In the day of trouble, like Hezekiah, turn to the Lord. And the Lord came to Hezekiah this way. He sent Eliakim, which was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. So Hezekiah went into the house of the Lord, and he said, Go get a man of God. Get me a man of God. I need to hear the word of God. And if you need help in the time of your great terror, and you happen to know a man of God, call a man of God. Don't call your lawyer, don't call your attorney, don't call your doctor, don't call your friend and gossip about it. Call a man of God, if you can find one. But Hezekiah knew of one, it was Isaiah the prophet. And this emissary that he sent to Isaiah said, Thus saith Hezekiah, 
This day is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy, for the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. He said it's a time of great travail. This is a time of birth pangs. Uh, This language, of course, emblematic of the time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's travail. Uh, This is emblematic. It is typical. It is a picture of the time yet to come in Israel. When the Savior is to be brought forth nationally in Israel as the Lord Lord Jesus Christ's second coming, Israel will go through the time of Jacob's trouble or time of birth pangs. And, of course, birth pangs are a very good discussion. The Bible teaches that birth pains are upon a woman and she's in horrible pain, but when the child is born, when the male child is born, she forgets her trouble. And... The Lord Jesus Christ came first in an unapparent way, his first coming. Those who believed the Scriptures received him. And he would have brought time of refreshing to the nation of Israel, but they rejected him. And the day they rejected him, he rejected them. He set Israel aside. But the promises of God are true. There remains a remnant of grace in this day. And when the Lord comes again, nationally speaking, unto the nation of Israel, a child will be born. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Father of Eternity, the Prince of Peace. And there's not going to be any peace until there is a Prince of Peace. Now, today, people have hired to themselves counselors. They've got a piece of plastic in their pocket, $75 an hour. they got an insurance policy. And they get bad counselors for that. And the Word of God is expensive because men of God can't be found. They're very hard to find. But you find one, he will give you the counsel of God. You see, he won't pretend to be a counselor. He will seek the counsel of God with you. That's what a man of God does. So here's the day of trouble. The children are come to the birth. There's not strength to bring forth. We're in a time of travail, and we don't think we can bring birth. That is, the nation of Israel is about to be extinguished. It may be the Lord God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that are left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah saith unto them, Thus shall ye say to your master, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria has blasphemed me. Behold, I'll send a blast upon him. He'll hear a rumor, shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So there you have it. He said, I'll take care of this guy. He'll fall in his own land. So God has given now his word, and they can be confident that he's not even going to fight in Israel. He's going to hear a rumor, and he's going to get a blast, and he's going to die in his own land. Now, it's interesting that the Lord takes the wicked in their own device here. He says, because he's going to hear something. He's going to hear a report because the king of Assyria is busy sending a report to the children of Israel to get them to give up. He's fighting by means of a report, and he's going to be defeated by means of a report. Very interesting how God takes the wicked 
in his own device, and he's going to fall in his own land. Maybe it's not fair to point out that Danny Werfel did get hit for a safety, to finish off the analogy, that he fell in his own land also. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe that is eisegesis imposed upon the scriptures by a partisan Husker fan. Maybe. So Rabshika returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for which he had heard, and he was departed from Lachish. And when he heard say of Turkaka, king of Ethiopia, behold, he has come out to fight against thee, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God in whom thy trust deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. So now he continues to give messages. The king of Assyria continues to give messages, but he's got his own problems going on. And Hezekiah now prays that the Lord will do what the Lord said he would do. And that, I wanted to get to this, because we have an opportunity here to learn something about prayer. Prayer is not getting God to do what you want him to do. Prayer is asking God to do what he said he will do. That is the only way you can pray by faith. So in order to pray effectively, you need to know what it is that God says he will do. So Hezekiah prays before the Lord. And like Elijah, do you know how it is that Hezekiah prays? That's right. He prays with prayers. O Lord God of Israel, which dwells between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, including, by the way, the kingdom of the Assyrians. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which have sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou alone. Now, can you imagine today, this is recorded in Scripture, brief prayer, a few verses, Here's a man who won't be heard for his many words, but for the effectiveness of his prayer. Can you imagine today a leader of a modern nation praying in such a way as this? I actually can't imagine it. I actually cannot imagine a king of a modern nation praying like this. But I can assure you that it is every bit as effective today as it was in that day. Now, Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And so the Lord said, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. Verse 34, 2 Kings 19. For my servant David's sake, it came to pass that night. The angel of the Lord went out, smote the camp of the Assyrians, a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. 185,000. It's a lot. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Interesting. Who arose? Well, obviously, the ones that woke up early in the morning were those of the hundreds of thousands that weren't dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass 
as he was worshiping in the house of his god, Nisroch, that Adremelech and Sherazer, his son, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia, and Ezerhaddon, his son, reigned in his stead. Now we see a new king of Assyria as Sennacherib is taken, really, in his own device by his own family. And now you would say, well, Hezekiah is a great man of God, and Judah has escaped the Assyrians, and they lived happily ever after, and they became a great nation and reunified. But none of that has happened. None of that did happen. Because we have Second Kings chapter 20, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, Put your house in order, for you're going to die and not live. That's a word the Lord comes to him and says, You're going to die, and you're not going to live. Put your house in order. Now, that's the word of the Lord. Hezekiah needs to be putting his house in order. He needs to be putting his house in order. It does not say to him exactly when he's going to die. But it does tell him what to do. Put your house in order. And if God commands you, if God tells you you're going to die, put your house in order. You have time, certainly, to do one thing, which is what? Put your house in order. What a wonderful thing to get that kind of warning. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Well, I understand that. He says he weeps with a great weeping. But I don't know what he's weeping about. I mean, it really, yeah, you can understand the weeping, but what is he crying about? Well, we would hope that he would be crying about and lamenting that his house is not in very good order and he needs time to get it done. But we don't see that, and he doesn't do that. It came to pass, now verse 4, 2 Kings 20, before Isaiah was gone out of the middle court. Now, this is how quickly this happens. He comes in, he tells him that. Hezekiah turns to the Lord and prays. The word of the Lord comes to Isaiah and says, Turn again, go back, tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years. Now he's given him a specific amount of time. He's given him 15 years. And I will deliver thee in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. I'll defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So here's a wonderful thing for Hezekiah, a wonderful opportunity for him to make a great name for himself, to have a wonderful impact on Judah off into the future because he's been given 15 years, a good long while by some measures, no time at all by other measures, 15 years to do what God has given him to do, which, by the way, you remember, set your house in order. Well, Hezekiah, is he going to do it? We'll come back in just a minute, and we'll find out. You know, sometimes you can believe the Lord for great things concerning the nation. Sometimes you can believe the Lord for great things concerning your business. But here it's difficult for Hezekiah to believe any great thing concerning his own life, his own health. 
because as now the word of the Lord comes to him from Isaiah, every bit as sure a word as any other word that ever came from the man of God, Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah now brings to him and says, you've been given 15 years, speaking thus saith the Lord. I'll add to your days 15 years. And Isaiah said, take a lump of figs. Then they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. So he laid some figs. He obviously had a boil. This was part of his sickness unto death. And they put figs, according to the word of Isaiah, they put figs on his boil, and he recovers. And you'd think he'd go forth from there, but he doesn't. He now seeks after a sign, and he's going to be given a sign. But it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after signs. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall the sign be that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shalt thou have of the Lord. The Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go back ten degrees? He says, Now here's what the Lord will do. He will move the shadow of the sundial ten degrees one way or another. And Hezekiah answered, it's a light thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees, but let it go backwards. It's a light thing to lose the time, but let's go gain time. And, of course, this is a picture of what's going to happen for Hezekiah. And he writes in the Psalms, you can read the Songs of Degrees of Hezekiah, 15 Psalms of Degrees, one for each year that he's extended, and He's now asking that the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So he's going to gain time. We're going to lose time here pretty soon. We're going to move our own dials here pretty soon. There's not really going to be a gain of time. We're going to move our own clocks backwards here pretty quick. But this now is not moving your clock backwards, which is simply a handy thing. This is... The sundial is going to go backwards, so this is miraculous because the sun actually has to move or stand still, or the earth does, or, well, do we really know? Do we really know? So, do we really know how this happens? So Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow backwards 10 degrees by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. That's his father. He obviously built the sundial likely, no one Ahaz, likely some kind of sun worship. And at that time, Baradoc Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And now here's something about Hezekiah, and this is another failure of man. Hezekiah withstood the propaganda. Hezekiah remained faithful under military attack. But Hezekiah could not withstand a smooth sales job. He couldn't be taken by warfare, but he could be taken by presence. He couldn't be overcome, but he could be bought. And whether he was bought emotionally, and this is one of the things that we do, don't we? We fail during a time of great blessing. We just can't wish. Here he's healed. He's got his health back, which it's a wonderful thing to get healthy. He got his health back. The king of Babylon sends him a letter saying, it's nice. I'm glad you're feeling better. And send a present. And Hezekiah paid attention to them. 
Hezekiah hearkened unto them, that is, to the Babylonians. He hearkened to the letters and the present, and he opened up his house to them. Now, this is going to be his captor, the Babylonians. And one thing Hezekiah doesn't do, you know, when he was in trouble, he prayed. When he was in trouble by war, he prayed. When he was in trouble by health, he prayed. But when he was in trouble by being bought, he didn't pray. And let me tell you, more men are destroyed by success than failure. More men are destroyed by money and their friends and their popularity than they are by their poverty or being constantly involved in enmity or being in ill health. I've seen very many men destroyed, and whole families, and women too, by desiring to be popular and by wanting money. They pierce themselves through with many sorrows. It's a sad, sad thing. Here Hezekiah hearkens unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. So here he invites the Babylonians in, and he shows them all the treasures of his house. Now, he can't show them the treasures of the house of the Lord, because those have all been cannibalized already and paid to the Assyrians, or just ruined, setting up false worship. But now here's his house. You remember, this is the house of Solomon that he inherited. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto the king Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? Where did they come from? Hezekiah said, they're come from, oh, they're come from way far away. These guys are from far, far away, even from Babylon. And Isaiah said to him, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, all the things that are in my house have they seen. There's nothing from all my treasures I did not show them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away. And they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon, which means they won't have any, because they're going to be eunuchs in Babylon, they're not going to have any progeny. And now the children of Hezekiah are doomed. He doesn't have a child at that time, but he's going to have a wicked child, and he's not going to do well, and his heritage is going to be destroyed. And then the children of Judah are going to be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And we're going to turn from this man, Hezekiah, to one of those children. We're going to talk briefly about Daniel, who is a eunuch in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Short-sighted, wretched guy, he's turned into that. He's just happy that in his days everything will be okay. Whereas his charge was to get his house in order and prepare to die. I agree that Hezekiah would have been better off just dying. He would have been better off dying. Let me tell you, friends, there are worse things than dying and that is living disgracefully as a child of God and bringing disgrace to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the equivalent of what this fellow did. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made a pool and a conduit, brought water into the city, big deal. Guy runs a few civic projects. His footprint is also in water that he left. 
What's your interest, huh? What's your interest? Leave a monument? Leave some kind of a monument? Have fun and leave a good corpse? That's what we were told when we were young. And now what is it? Now that you're old, what is it? Leave some kind of bell tower at the university with your name on it or leave your name on some other good work somewhere and that's it? Build a conduit, bring water into the city? Is that what you want to be remembered for? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, dwelt in his stead. Now, that was the last 15 years of Hezekiah, all in one verse. Okay? He embarrassed himself. He brought the Babylonians in, set up the captivity. He built a pool and a conduit, brought some water into the city, which he lost, the city which he lost. And then he left this nice pool and conduit and water supply, and he also left this wretched Manasseh. He was 12 years old when he began to reign. He left a 12-year-old kid in charge. Had he just died, had he just died, he wouldn't have left this wicked 12-year-old. The kingdom of Judah could have passed elsewhere. There's an order of precedence. So he'd go to his brother or whatever. There's somebody there. Don't need this kid. And his mother's name was Hefzibah. Now, we hear his mother's name. We know he's either really a great guy or he's really a wretched guy. What do you think? He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah's father had destroyed. He reared up altars for Baal, made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said in Jerusalem, will I put my name. So this guy is the Ahab of Judah. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he is the Ahab of Judah. He made his son pass through the fire. He observed times. So he maybe kept a liturgical calendar and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. And he brought forth much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. That's a kind of wretched character. This is the, this is the heritage that Hezekiah left. And my friend... My Christian brother, have you thought about what kind of heritage you're leaving? I mean, are you really going to just leave us Manasseh and that's the end of it? Think about it. Put your house in order.